All right, my friends, let me tell you about a great sponsor and a great podcast based on the Evidence podcast. It's a mother-son duo that has been nice enough to sponsor the show and also a show that I've been binging on. It's pretty cool. Mom-son, sort of that great dynamic. I can only imagine doing a true crime podcast with my mom, considering the fact that the whole reason why I became a criminologist and a forensics investigator is because my mom used to watch ID Discovery all the time. I'd kind of be running around the house, listening in on stories about murderers and serial killers and all this other great happy stuff check these guys out based on the evidence podcasts great diversity of cases they do a great job mixing humor with heavy topics which is always kind of tricky if murder could be fun these guys make it fun it's true crime with a twist instead of the usual cold cases the podcast gives us some closure i actually love following along trying to figure out if the suspect was guilty or innocent I really appreciate it if you guys check it out, Monster Podcast listeners. I've been so blessed after just five episodes. I've got 5,000 downloads. So please do me a favor, help out our great sponsor. Go check out Based on the Evidence Podcast on Apple, Spotify, just about anywhere that you can hear podcasts. Based on the Evidence Podcast. Thank you, friends. Faces look ugly when you're alone. Women seem wicked when you're unwanted. Streets are uneven when you're down, when you're straight. Faces come out of the rain. We're live. Monster Podcast, episode number six. I was reading through the analytics today uh, as we're live on YouTube, and I realized that each episode has gotten over a thousand downloads. I'm at 5,200. And 53 in just five episodes, which puts us as number nine in the true crime podcast category for all of Apple Podcasts. And I see people, I'm looking at the countries here. People are checking in from New Zealand, Israel, Canada, obviously. Uh, they're checking in from South Africa, Mexico, New Zealand, Sweden. Listen today, Australia and United Kingdom. So I just want to thank everybody so much. This is so much fun. Uh, as I get ready for the book to come out and millions of cases to go over and I'm just really proud and happy and having so much fun just chatting with you guys. So uh, tonight's the premiere episode on YouTube. It took me weeks and weeks to get my YouTube channel up and running. I have no idea why. Um, so if you're watching us right now, here we are. Um, Terry Sutton of SavageWatch.com. Now let me just intro this a little bit. Back before I did anything with media and I was just looking into a lot of true crime cases, I would often fall onto this local website, which looked like a guy who was local to me um, in Connecticut, who ran an incredible website dedicated to a lot of cold cases, unidentified pedophiles, serial killers. I would go to Reddit. I would follow him there. If you don't follow him on Reddit, you should. Um, he would always bring up some interesting discussions and the amount of detail that he would put in to writing up these little snippets on cold cases. It, it was, I must have read the website for two, three, four years before I reached out to the guy. And then finally I reached out to him. We sort of connected, became friendly. And, and here we are, Terry. Welcome in, my friend. Well, Dave, it, it definitely is an honor. Uh, congratulations <laughs> on the successful podcast. Not only with true crime, but uh, obviously mixed martial arts, since I, I have covered a little bit of mixed martial arts for, you know, a website or two or, uh, you know, uh, some newspapers there. 
so you're in yeah. Connecticut. You started yes. the website in 2002, which is the my God, it seems like the Stone Age. Now, what were you originally on? It probably would have been what Angel Fire. It was Angel Fire. Yep, there's still remnants of that Angel Fire page left. I, <laughs> I had to change the server because it was just it, it just was not reliable. But Angel Fire gave me a good run for a long time. I think the popularity it was actually most popular on Angel Fire before Google changed the algorithms. But uh, sure, we still get a lot of cases out there. You know, there's there's a lot of true crime websites out there nowadays. I was doing it back when there weren't as many. You were like the OG of true crime. I've been going to the website for years, even before I started getting into writing and when I was just working and interested when I was in school and, and now I'm back in school and that whole jazz. But, you know, what the hell made you want to get on a computer in 02 and start a website dedicated to cold cases? Well, this is a story I've told many people, including, you know, quite a bit of law enforcement as well when they ask you about it or ask me about it. Um, I remember seeing a uh, website that was uh, dedicated to having people write letters to Connecticut death row inmates, including Michael Ross, who was the last person executed on Connecticut death row before they abolished the death penalty. And uh, I was kind of insulted by it. I'm like, you know, what about their victims? You know, Michael Ross had uh, eight homicide victims as well as two other sexual assault victims. There were other guys like, you know, Daniel Webb, who, you know, killed a woman, uh, chased her down. There were several others that did horrible crimes. And I thought to myself, well, what about the victims? And at the time, I was kind of, you know, looking into different websites. I thought about doing something about the paranormal. That's been an interest of mine. But there are already several paranormal websites. I said, well, why not do something regarding the victims' families? And I uh, I said, well, you're not going to get that much interest for crimes that have already been solved. But what about crimes that haven't been solved? And I remember thinking about the first case I really wanted to put on there, which was uh, a case of an unidentified female teenager that was found behind a strip mall in New Britain right off of Route 9, nearby a very popular mall called the West Farms Mall. And uh, a couple of years ago, they solved it, you know, but for a long time, for about two decades, they had no idea who she was. A few years before it got solved, they realized that her DNA was tied with some, well, her DNA was closely tied to a woman that was found around the same time in Massachusetts. And um, come to find out it was a mother-daughter, and it was the father-slash-husband that killed him so he could start a whole new family. So that case was the first one on the website. Um, but what really started me, my interest in a true crime, was the Martha Moxley homicide. When I read about that as a kid in the Hartford Current, um, hearing about a Kennedy cousin who at the time they were suspecting was Tommy Skakel, the older brother, who was last seen, you know, kissing and making out with Martha. And we come to find out years later it was Michael Skakel convicted now. Conviction has been, I guess, overturned. I don't know if there'll be another trial or not. But that's what kind of um, intrigued me. And I think before I started my website, there was a man that had a website up for Martha Moxley, as well as Matthew Margulies, who was a, a young kid who would be my age. I think he would probably be about a year younger than me if he was still alive. He was, uh, he was, he's, his murder is still unsolved in uh, the wealthy town of Greenwich. And, um, you know, that's, that's a mystery. You know, sure. Uh, but, sure. Uh, yeah. The uh, Moxley case, just for people who do, do not from this area may not know, uh, young woman killed by a man, uh, allegedly killed by a man, a Kennedy cousin named Michael Skakel. Um, 
lots of uh, discussion in this area for years and years about what actually happened. That's one of the most bizarre cases uh, you can ever ever run across. And of course, you know, he's a cousin of a one of the most famous president, probably the most famous president in history. So outside of Donald Trump anyway, now probably so. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's a wealthy family. You know, it's a wealthy family. I think the police may have been intimidated. Uh, sure. You know, it's it's still a case that intrigues. I mean, there are still theories that say that, you know, Michael Skakel didn't do it. Um, I think the evidence that I, I believe he probably did do it, but I think the evidence to convict him was was really hearsay. It was a lot of circumstantial, even though proximity wise and there was a lot of there was motive. Um, but that's like a whole other episode. You can find yeah. people talking about that. Many episodes. There's a picture yeah. of uh, Michael Skakel there uh, to the left. Uh, is that Michael or is that the brother? That's the Martha had a that's, brother. Yeah, I believe that's uh, Martha's brother, John. Martha's Actually, brother, I apologize yeah. to my YouTube. Vi- I uh, I failed you tonight, but you can just Google a picture of Michael Skakel. He's great. He's handsome. He's a candidate. So um, <laughs> either way, and you're right about that. And you're right about that. That's another five or six episodes, probably. Um, real quick, while I got you, I mean, while we're, you're a Connecticut guy, we're talking Connecticut cases. Uh, it's been in the news in the past 10 years, uh, most specifically the shooting at Newtown, Connecticut. Yeah, you know, uh, it's kind of like the Station Nightclub fire where you did an article and you did a podcast on that where everybody knows somebody that knows somebody that was in that fire. I would guess to say with the Newtown terrible shooting there of those school children and their teachers uh i'd say the majority of people in connecticut know somebody that knew somebody there i i didn't know anybody that was there but i do know uh one of the bars i would go to one of the bartenders there at her wedding one of the girls killed in that was a flower child uh i do know i do know other people that said that uh you know that um they're their child's godparent was uh, the father of one of the kids there. Uh, so a couple people I had spoken to that said they knew uh, some of the family members. I, I work as a title searcher and you know, boy, that, that's, a, that's a face that scares me. <laughs> um, yeah. I do know that there was somebody there that was an attorney that worked there who had lost her grandchild there. But just boggles the mind that people still think that the whole thing was like, uh, you know, some sort of crazy stage act. I, I just can't understand the hatred that a lot of people have to do that to the families. I, I, I believe that there's a lot about Adam Lanza that we're not being told about. I think that there were a lot of warning signs that we missed about Adam, that, that people missed about Adam Lanza and that um, has not been brought out there. Early on in the investigation, there was chatter in the media that said that he was known to the police you know we haven't heard any more about that i think people knew more about adam lanza than at least law enforcement may have known more about him than was let on sure Sure, has has had some strange stuff happen to it i mean the wood chipper murder where the guy killed his he was a pilot he he uh, killed his uh wife and fed her to a fed her through a a wood chipper and they convicted him henry lee the famous Mm -hmm. uh um, forensic scientist who has a college named after him at the University of New Haven. Mm-hmm. He helped solve that case there. There's at least uh, another missing persons case there of, a, of, of another pilot's wife that went missing. I think there's also another case of a man whose uh, living boyfriend, well, he, he, he disappeared. They believe that his living boyfriend 
uh, killed him. I think those those there were a couple cases in the 80s. And, uh, of course, there was also an infamous shootout, I think, in the late 70s, early 80s, involving some motorcycle clubs and uh, all parties involved. I think two people died. One person was uh, wounded on the one side, and the guy that did the shooting was uh, was executed, with, I think, on the road a, a year later. So it involved some one percent of motorcycle clubs, and that's still a mystery, you know, as to who killed the, the, you know, the guy that uh, – the bar owner where the, the, shootout took, the shootout took place there. So Newtown's had some – Newtown's had some pretty unusual stuff, and it's a nice town. I've been sure. there many, many times. Sure, it's a, a very affluent, uh, yeah. rich neighborhood. Um, the 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 case that probably drove me to your site um, more than any, and re- really, uh, you're the only one I've ever seen shed any light on this case. Uh, and we're going to put some pictures up on the screen here. There's oh, one. Yeah. There's another one, and and there's the cachet. Uh, for the people who are not listening live, I'll, I'll link these pictures uh, into the show notes if you're listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. But let me just set the scene for you. West Hartford, Connecticut doctor uh, who passed away in 1998, lung cancer. Um, a young man named Ken Mangini bought his house in t- 2005. In 2007, Mangini goes downstairs to remodel. I've actually gotten to talk to Ken on two separate occasions because I've looked into this case so much to see if I could connect him to some other uh, serial predators uh, from the Massachusetts area, New England area. Uh, this man was a doctor who Terry has been nice enough to connect me with the uh, lead detective on the case who I've been able to talk to a couple times. Uh, the man's name is Dr. George Reardon. They found the biggest cachet in 2007 of child pornography that most of these detectives I've spoken with have ever seen. You're talking 50,000, 60,000 pictures, home movies, eight millimeters. And also an, a very uh, little known fact that I was able to ascertain in my investigation is that uh, Dr. Reardon, who lived in West Hartford, Connecticut, actually had a summer home in New York City, right up in upstate New York in the Hamptons. They raided that about a month later um, after his death, and they actually found uh, very much the same. So they already knew that Dr. Reardon um, was into child pornography. They knew that he was a uh, a serial predator. He was a man who was, uh, his medical license was taken away and he basically, you know, he was, he lived out the rest of his life in disgrace. So, um, how did you come to learn about this case? And, and, and again, I want to thank you for, for putting some light onto it because you just, this is a case that's been totally lost to history. Well, I grew up in West Hartford and I actually know people in high school that knew some of the kids that lived with Dr. Weird and who you've been in contact with. And I'm sure you're going to, in your podcast, if, if it hasn't been done already, you'll probably do some more about that. So I grew it's, up it, it hasn't been done yet, but trust me, it's coming. Go ahead. <laughs> and, um, you know, when I first heard about them, like, this is crazy, you know, and the Hartford Current did a, a whole bunch of writing about a whole bunch of articles about you know, Dr. Reardon, and we come to find out that one of the guys that wrote for, uh, you know, uh, the Hartford Current was one of his victims. And I think in the early 70s, and his mother, who was of Irish ancestry, I guess a tough Irish woman, believed him. She asked what's wrong, what's, what's going on there, and she found out about it, got an attorney, and they tried to, uh, I, I guess, either process, have, have, tried to either get him arrested or try to have his license removed, but... I think the hospital did know that there was a complaint and somehow it got lost because when I think they finally got the next complaint there, they didn't, 
they didn't take it as seriously until they got, I guess by the third complaint, they finally decided to do something about him as far as taking away his license. Whereas if the first complaint had not been forgotten about there, they would have basically taken action a, a few years earlier. But this guy had victims in New York when he started because I guess he grew up in New York. He was educated in New York and obviously moved down to Connecticut. He had a whole bunch of victims locally, got them from Hartford, West Harper's practice, obviously. He had victims that were both male and female. I think he had easier access to males where he could get them up at the cabin. But he did he did uh, terrorize yes. brothers and sisters. He did One of the girls. rare offenders that usually, sorry, Terry, that usually there's a strike zone. They're interested in men. They're only interested in young boys or young girls. But he was an equal opportunity offender for sure. And just to set one more scene, this was a guy who would send home letters. He would just send out mass mailers to families and say, uh, if you have a child of this age, I want to conduct a growth study experiment on him. I mean, he was a well-organized predator. See, I had no idea about that. That's, that's mm -hmm. that. I just learned something new today there. Yeah, I didn't know that either. That's not available in the public. Uh, somebody tipped me to that, that they would literally get written letters, someone from your neck of the woods who was about your age at the time and, you know, uh, had told me that Dr. Reardon would send home letters to families and say um, he would be conducting sex studies where he would need the children to be naked. Or there's just so much there that needs to be told. Well, I don't think my parents would have gone for that, but I, I, would, <laughs> I, would, I, would, I would be I would I would have been scared if that letter had shown up in my house. Or, right. You know, I, I can't really get into too much detail, but as I told you off camera one time before, we had other people in town that were doing stuff. Sure. Right? Not to the level that Dr. Reardon did, but there was other stuff that had gone on in town there were people who were either protected or when the truth came out it was decades later and you could not even they were sued in court but they were they were not prosecuted but he never did a day in jail for any of that ever they were doing a day in jail <laughs> pedophiles yep. have a way of being they're they're very intelligent they're very dangerous they're very conniving and um, it's scary how many people have been victims of sexual abuse girls and boys but that's a whole other thing that's a whole other story and the pictures that i just showed um you know the main point in your article there was uh um that reardon may have had um some sort of um accomplices he might have had some people who were working in concert with him i had heard and i know that you know this too that he used to play golf with a retired priest Mm -hmm. The man's uh, Cornelius Ortero was his name. He came in from Brooklyn. Uh, he was a soon-to-be defrocked priest who uh, was basically, they did to him what they did to priests in those days. He sexually abused, abused a boy. They sent him away to another you know, place to get better. Go ahead. I know that Otero in an article, I, I came across his name for the first time when I saw an article in the New York Post about uh, a man that refused a lawsuit. Uh, from I think the Catholic Diocese and he mentioned Otero and, and the New York Post did a great job whoever the writer was uh, mentioned that um, that Otero was working for St. Francis Hospital same hospital where uh, George Reardon is so I'm somehow pretty sure that some of these, these pedophiles and child molesters they always seem to find a way to connect with each other which I'm sure you either talked about or you will be talking about in your episodes i've written about extensively yeah you're correct about that they they find a way of finding each other mm -hmm. and i can sure. say that at least in my town i think they found a way to where i where i grew up 
it would be hard to believe that Ortero and George Reardon would not have found each other. It's sort of a uh, uh, 1970s version of finding each other in chat rooms. And the internet didn't exist then, so you kind of coexisted with each other some another way. So, um, and yeah, like you said, um, you know, without going into too much detail, there, there, in the 1970s, everywhere in New England, there was a problem with pedophilia, and I'm sure it was like that in your town as well. Yes, yes, it was a problem, I and mean, I think it's. It's still a problem in religious institutions, whether it's the Catholic Church, Jewish synagogue, uh, mosques. We're finding that out there. Boy Scouts, uh, high schools, junior high schools, they flock to where the kids are. They flock to the malls where they do all sorts of stuff there. It's uh, Yes. What could do? Just a transition, and I appreciate you shining some light on Reardon, and it gave me a lot of, uh, I was just at the end of writing the Chapman book, I was sort of burnt out, I was looking through your site, and it, it sort of reinvigorated me, and who knows if I'll ever do do a Reardon book, but there's so much more to come, I've got four episodes on Reardon, so for the people who are listening who have asked me about Reardon, and I've gotten a bunch of emails, um, unfortunately, there is much more George Reardon to come. Um I would love to see. I would love to see some of those guys identified. He, yeah. If they're putting those pictures out there, and obviously, I, I think Reardon had a certain type of uh, paper or the yes. print, which you'll probably get into yes. in, a, in, in a future podcast. There, somehow, I think those guys. I think Reardon. I, I, I'm getting the impression that maybe Reardon took pictures of what was what, going what it was, and I don't care about giving it away. No big deal. People, what happened was Reardon had his own home studio set up. This guy was like a, a genius with um, with um, the old school way of sort of developing film where you'd put it in that water and, you know, long before, you know, and he used a special parchment paper that was a quarter and an inch thick and made out of this certain material. Um, the way he took the pictures, I mean, the detectives who worked on the case told me, if you showed me a George Reardon victim right now, I would be able to tell you that that's a Reardon. I could tell a Reardon from anyone else because of the way he took it. The lighting, as you can see in the pictures that we've showed, the the sort of bright coloring in the back. Um, so, and I was talking to detectives who hadn't worked on the case since 2008. It's now 2021. It's 13 years later. You know, things have been, you know, lost to time, but it, and we'll definitely get into it in future episodes. But George Reardon knew was great at developing film. He was almost an artist in the way he did it. And that was something that was just not seen then. A lot of the pictures were crude. Um, you know, they were snapped, you know, like, you know, two to four millimeter, whatever it was. So, um, yeah, not to get too off, but yes, um, for sure. How many victims do you think he had? What is like close to a thousand? Um, it's impossible to know. Um, the man was never caught. The man never spent a day in jail. You know, we talk about offenders like like Wayne Chapman, who, you know, he uh, admitted to a hundred victims. Yes, yeah. he admitted to a hundred victims. But let's be honest, more than three quarters of his life he was in prison. And he only had about 10 years from about 16 to 26 before he got locked up forever. So he only had about 10 years. George Reardon had 68 years to, you know, uh, and much more resources, you know. I think his name was Jimmy Seville. He was a British TV personality. How many children did he? Yeah, there's another one. Uh, you're right, Jimmy Seville. Um, there's an episode I'm working on now. Um, 
episode that I'm working on right now that you're going to enjoy with a, a reporter from the Winnipeg, Winnipeg Free Press who's going to come on next week. A gentleman named Cram James, who was a hockey coach in the juniors up in Canada, and they estimate that he had around 1,500 victims of young kids, including uh, NHL hockey player Theo Flory, who's written about it in, in his book. Sheldon Kennedy. Um, Sheldon Kennedy. Too. Sheldon yeah. Kennedy. Um, we're going to do Sheldon that one. Kennedy, I had no idea yeah. he had that many victims. I knew that. I knew Sheldon Kennedy when he first started talking about it. The guy went to jail said there was a big NHL star. Yeah, but he's not going to be coming out about that. But holy cow, fifteen hundred victims! Fifteen hundred victims, and just so you know, he did. Uh, I believe his max time. I think he ended up with less than thirty-six months in jail. He's out right now and lives in Quebec. So um, that's just you know, for some reason, and we talk about it often when we connect. It's just these guys get protected, you know. And I have been a big advocate for the death penalty because there's no way to stop them. You just have to, they just have to be locked away from civilized society or they just need to be killed. Um, I don't know how anyone say it. As, as you know, that they've basically abolished the death penalty and now you've got all these people that are saying no more solitary confinement. We're seeing prison sentences lowered. And I know I'm getting off topic here, but when people start seeing that, we know that there's street justice out there. But that case in South Carolina there where that mother and son were killed, that well from that wealthy family, where he's yes. been alleged to, uh, is a Murtaugh, I think, there? Has been yeah, alleged to Murtaugh. have been involved in, in, I think, maybe two deaths. At, yes. Accidentally, maybe, but you know, we're, we're going to learn more about that. But either that's uh, somebody getting revenge or somebody being a vigilante. And, and down sure. the road, I'm sure you'll do another podcast about vigilantes. They are out there. I know, at least on my website, on the New Hampshire page, we have one possible vigilante case, which is bizarre and not for not for the squeamish basically sure but i think a true crime is not for the squeamish but uh <laughs> yeah, some, people, some people just i just i just don't understand how they think some people just don't think like a human being sure give me some cases um that are sort of your uh pet cases one that bothers you over another we all have those um i could rattle a couple of them off but you've written so much about all these cold cases give me a couple that stand out in your mind I've been fortunate that quite a few of them have been, have been solved. Uh, Elizabeth yep. Hall is the one that, because I would go to that Subway restaurant where they found her uh, back there. And ironically enough, years later, a serial killer who was completely unrelated, William Devin Howell, left seven victims there. So the fact they, you know, they, they were those, the first three, they were unidentified for several years. And I remember sure. the daughter of one of a missing woman and we were both talking and said, you need to look at this particular guy, you know, and we, she was, you know, she was understanding. I said, you know, this possibility, your mom could be one of these three victims. And it turned out she was the third victim that they had, you know, they'd found. And when they finally went back there and dug several years later, they found the other four victims. But those two killers who had nothing to do with each other, uh, that, that being solved, that was a big relief. The Bear Brook murders in New Hampshire. Talk about bizarre. The one where they found the drum of a mother, and which they, at the times, you know, they did not know if they were related, but it turned out to be a mother and daughter. And I think seven or, you know, 10, 12 years later, I'm not exactly sure of the time, time frame. And another portion of the property found another drum where they found two other girls there. And, uh, they, you know, DNA would reveal that, you know, the woman was related to two of the kids and the third kid was unrelated. 
and they eventually tied it into a horrible serial killer by the name of Terry Rasmussen. Now, Rasmussen, uh, they're saying he killed those the women and two kids. He was, you know, obviously uh, he was the boyfriend of that miss of, of that woman, and it was a genealogist. She, I think, was a librarian from Connecticut that solved that. Yeah. Um, but the third the third child was his own daughter. Yes, I believe it was the uh, you had Marlies Honeychurch, who was 24, Marie Vaughn, seven uh, and the two and 11 month uh, year old child, respectively. So to do that to a kid, you know, sometimes sometimes true crime. Yeah, just it just it uh, it's hard sometimes. It's hard to really uh, sometimes read the stuff there, see the pictures. Sometimes you go through burnout for a couple of days here. But who's the mother of Rasmussen's daughter? That's a mystery. There's also another missing woman that he was seen with where he kidnapped the daughter and dropped her off in California. Yeah. And uh, she got reunited with her biological grandfather. So she's still missing. There was a young woman, uh, Laureen Ron. She disappeared in Manchester, New Hampshire in 1980. Um, Rasmussen lived a block, couple mere blocks away from, he was a very good suspect in that case. Unfortunately, he ended up dying. So um, they could never, never tie it to him. Yep. Yeah, he took the secrets with him. There's a possibility we may find out there. I'm glad at least he got he got to spend his last uh, few years of life in jail for at least one of his murders. It's just too bad he never got uh, full justice. But then again, what is full justice? I don't know. We'll ever get full justice. <laughs> Right. Uh, and it looks like the um, murders were the genealogy you were talking about is called GEDmatch. Um, okay. I'm a big believer in uh, genealogy and uploading your DNA. We were just having this discussion this morning. Um, we were talking earlier. There's been many cases lately that have been solved by DNA and building family trees, most notably the Golden State Killer. Um, that, was, that was beautiful. <laughs> yeah. That was, that's another case that I, I, was, I was pretty happy about there. So. I guess we have to, you know, I guess as far as the unsolved cases, the cases that are still unsolved, uh, all the killings in Vernon and Tolland, where all these girls went missing, whether it was Janice Pocket, Lisa White, though uh, Mike yeah. Bouchard, who is a true crime author and a Bridgeport police officer, we both agree, and Michael first came upon it, that uh, the uh, relative of uh, Susan LaRosa, who was found, uh, went missing in 75, and you know, was found murdered in 78. She was a mother of three, uh, as well as Irene LaRosa, who was finally reported missing a couple of years ago, who there's a connection between the two besides sharing the last name is that uh, one is a sister and one is the husband of what Michael Bouchard believes to be the prime suspect who probably could be responsible for not only those two homicides, but uh, disappearing, well, we'll assume there are homicides. Uh, others as well. Uh, there's also a guy in, Granby, Connecticut, that they've never identified. He's sure. probably been about 45 years uh, ago. I would tend to think there's a possibility that could be uh, the people responsible could, could have either been drug dealers in Litchfield County or the Springfield Mafia, who were pretty big back then. They were pretty they were pretty feared. They had a lot more influence before the federal racketeering basically uh, you know, took, took down their numbers. As far as other states go, uh, it's just really uh, kind of jarring to go over your Connecticut page and look at the amount of missing crazy. girls from Connecticut. I did. And then I branched off to Rhode Island, and Massachusetts, mm-hmm. New York State. Uh, obviously, Long Island serial killer is a big one. That's one that intrigues a lot of people. Yeah. Um, I remember there was one in Maine where I had a, you know, it was a suicide that I tried posting about, and they eventually solved that. Through, uh, sure. police work. There was the uh, 
the Grateful Dead fan that read it. Yeah. The, the mother, the mother of the deceased, saw that he died in a car accident, and uh, twenty years later, I th- or close to twenty years later, she's like, "Geez, that looks like my son." And uh, you know, I think sometimes some people are afraid to know. You know, they're afraid to really pursue it because they hope that their loved one comes back, not realizing that they could have met the foul player or an unfortunate circumstance. Uh, so there's been a lot, you know, quite a few of these cases have been solved, which is good, but there's still a lot. There's so many out there that just are not solved. I've talked to law enforcement in different states there and uh, a lot of situations where they know they have a good idea who did it, but they're just one step away. Mm-hmm. Or the district attorney or state's attorney doesn't, doesn't want to prosecute. You know, I think Rhode Island... Rhode Island has had at least maybe one or two serial killers that they've never caught or they've never identified. doesn't mean they weren't okay. caught. They may have been caught for one homicide, but they haven't sure. been able to get them for other homicides. I mean, you look at Newport, there were some women that were killed in Newport, um, southern part of Rhode Island, obviously the northern part of Rhode Island. I know Rhode Island's a small state there, but yeah, there was quite a few white and Hispanic females that were you know, killed that could be tied into one or two different people. But, uh, sure, there's uh, the case of the New Bedford Highway Killer here in the 1980s. Who, um, there was a lot of books written about it. I have my own theories on who did it. Um, I think who did it. Do you think that uh, it's the uh, the person that you think it did? I mean, uh, if you, if you, you know, I don't know if you'll save that for a podcast or not. Or do you, is he currently serving time for nope. one homicide? No, he's currently the man who I. just I'll paint the picture very quickly there's a woman named Maureen Boyle who's a true crime author here based in Massachusetts she's written about she wrote a book on Donald Eugene Webb who is still on the FBI's most wanted list yep he killed a police chief uh, in Pennsylvania um, but originally from Massachusetts she wrote a book about the New New Bedford Highway killings where to be honest with you um, you know just for the people who are not from this area not familiar with the case I believe it was 11 prostitutes and the small area of New Bedford, Massachusetts, which sort of borders the Rhode Island, Massachusetts line. Um, actually, they found a lot of bodies in a lot of different cities. They just call it the New Bedford Highway Killer. They yeah. actually found him pretty much in bodies all up and down the south coast here in Massachusetts, where I sit right now. Um, I think two are still missing, but they, they count those two as well as... Right. And, and who knows how many more. There's a man yeah. yep. uh, who I've been tracking for years who lives in my town he's out right now he's in his late 70s it'll be in episode number eight i believe uh this is a man who is offended across six decades who has spent the two-thirds of his life in prison but was was uh out at the time who every time he got out of prison he began he offended again he's been he was committed to the massachusetts treatment center for the sexually dangerous for 18 years. Um, he got out in 2014 after being in since 1996. He also did a long bid from the 60s into the 70s uh, and got out right around the time of the New Bedford Highway killings began. And he absolutely um, was fixated on female prostitutes. Um, and he never killed any. He was never convicted of killing any, I should say. But he was convicted many, many times of raping uh, prostitutes. He raped two young girls in a state park uh, in Fairhaven, Massachusetts in the 1960s when he was 17. He's a, he's had a life of raping and abusing and terrorizing women. And uh, he's about uh, one and a half miles from where I sit right now. He's the 1960s. He, yeah, there was a- he's very old. He's... Uh, 84 go ahead 
there's a there's an unsolved homicide I think in Holyoke that right near an old, sure. old amusement park. Yeah, it happened '68. Yeah, '68. I know what you're talking about. I just I can't. That's such a bridge too far from where he operated. I don't see him being that mobile. I mean, as I sit right here, I live on the opposite end of the state, so I'm an hour and a half from Holyoke. You know. I live closer to like, I mean, I throw a stone. I'm in Providence. I'm on that side of the country, you know, of the state. So, okay. um, yeah, I mean, you, you'll, you'll see it soon. I'm, I'm, I'm certainly not going to slander the guy. I think it's a, uh, uh, very crazy charge to throw at somebody. Um, but I think if you look at the evidence and you look at the history, you look at the background, you sort of piece everything together geographically and then uh, look at the behavior, look at the victimology. It's uh, Was he was he seriously, was he assaulting these? I mean, great Oh yeah. Brutally beating them. Yes. Brutally beating them, sodomizing them. Um, and, 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 you know, the he, yeah. Right. I mean, like we like we've talked about in the past, I mean, things get out of hand and then all of a sudden, you know, um, yeah. I mean, did that happen nine times or 11 times? I'm not too sure, but uh, it's deserving of a look. And I've talked to Maureen Boyle, uh, the woman who wrote the definitive book on the New Bedford Highway killings. And I suggest that you read it. She'll be on this podcast uh, shortly. Um, She had somebody else in mind who was a lawyer. She names it in the book. Uh, He was into drugs. He he practiced law. Then as soon as the killings got hot, he took off and moved to Florida. And yeah, the attorney. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the the guy was mentioning that serving time in murder. That's scarcely. You know, do you think yep. he's the main street, uh, main street South Woodsman, the one that was taking all the, uh, the prostitutes? Yes. Prostitutes yes. I mean, yeah, he, he was a violent guy. He got very lucky that he didn't get charged for a couple of sexual assaults because I think the one died of a drug overdose. And the other one, there was just untimely deaths that benefited from benefited him. And they finally got him for one homicide, I think, at Fitchburg, Mass. But he sure. fit a lot of characteristics there. But of course, in Vermont and New Hampshire, they never caught the uh, the Connecticut Valley River killer. Yeah, you know, this yep. guy was violent. I don't know if I don't know if he sexually assaulted his victims, but this guy just hated. I mean, pure yep. hatred of women. I also kind of wonder if it's possible that Robert Durst, who had yep. a case up in Vermont, if he could have had uh, been involved because they are looking at him for the disappearance of Lynn Schulze. Not to mention his first, I mean, his wife, uh, his best friend. And uh, obviously, they tried to convict him on killing his neighbor in Texas, and uh, that that didn't work. But sure. Durst, Durst was so maniacal. I mean, he he wanted to kill his own family, his own brother. So, uh, yeah. You know. No, D- D- Durst is a uh, interesting character who sort of weaves his way into. Uh, Massachusetts, sort of uh, New England, you know, a lot of these serial killers who sometimes don't even start out in the state. They're not born here. They're they're living in other parts of the country. I mean, Ted Bundy at one point was here in Massachusetts. People don't realize that, you know, um, he's a guy who was born in the born in the Northwest. Uh, in research for my book, I was finding you know, guys with six decades worth of pedophilia offenses in the middle of the country in the Midwest. And then I start looking through their records and I see that in the 1970s, they were living in Massachusetts randomly, you know, did some thorough killings of, I think, boys in California. And he was in an orphanage in Connecticut where they think he was sexually assaulted. But I think he was a phantom freeway killer. I'm not really sure, but they caught him and he he was he, he was a bad one. I mean, these guys are so maniacal, but. 
also, I think some of these people are not necessarily born evil. I think a lot of them are, but some of them become evil. Like a uh, Warnos, the female serial killer. I don't yeah. think she was born that way. She just had so much abuse and so much, so much yeah. bad stuff done to her. She yeah. became a monster. You know, so she hated people. men, and and she was a lesbian, yeah. and she. Who you know, or if you, people again who don't know the story of Eileen Mornos, I mean, she was, uh, I believe, she was sold for a pitcher of beer by her mother when she was like 12 years old. Or uh, there's a great movie called Monster, I believe. Uh, Charlize Theron played her, did a great job. Yes. Um, and there's a great book, which I, again on this podcast, I will always recommend that you read the book and not watch the movie. And it, the book is also called Monster. I suggest you read that. Um, so I, you know, just wrapping up here. I'm sorry, it's 38 minutes in. I don't want to take up too much of your time, man. Yeah. I appreciate it. What the, you know, what's the, you know, is it rewarding running this site? Is it a lot of work? You know, if you look through this site and, and my true crime, uh, my monster podcast fans, you guys got to go to savagewatch.com. It's just a one-stop shop for all things cold cases. It's not just New England. He touches on California. You're looking at federal. You're looking at, uh, Florida, you know, all over. Submit your cases. You know, we'll put it on there. I have to admit, there are some other websites out there that came after me that have become very detailed. My website was always to kind of mostly a couple paragraphs. There are other websites out there that really dig into some serious details. There's some great websites out there. Uh, but I I generally tend to feel very happy with the website when I have uh, victims' families come to me and say, you know, thank you for getting the case back out in the public eye. Yeah. Uh, that's very helpful. There's cases that I've been where people have contacted me, where their missing loved ones are not on NamUs, where we've put that out there, or we've helped get, uh, you know, I think with the case of Lisa White, when her mother was still alive, we helped get, you know, get her filed with a missing persons organization. And I remember Lisa's mother contacting me saying, I wish she finally saw her daughter's picture in the Walmart, the poster. She had this, like, she wasn't sad. She wasn't happy. She was like, she just like, she's like, it was just a bizarre, you know, bizarre, but she was so, in the end, she was happy to see that there was some recognition for Lisa, and obviously there's been some more press about her, even though it's, you know, 1974 that she went missing from Vernon, uh, Connecticut. Uh, but there's other people that say, you know, gee, thank you for putting that out there, you know, getting the information out there. Has it directly helped solve any cases? Um, I think it may have with the Elizabeth Hodge case, because we did mention that it was a mother and daughter when they finally reported a missing persons case in New York State where they were last seen there. I'm pretty sure, at least I'm hoping that they went to my website, but the genetic DNA would have eventually solved that case. Solved anyway. it anyway. Um, you know, there's, there's other cases where I think that the bad guys know that the families are still thinking about their loved ones. And uh, yeah, sure. I mean, I have a lot of cases submitted by, fa- by family members and friends. You know, so uh, we were just talking about one this morning that we're going to work on for, you know, that's that yeah. the thing I do and, Savage Watch, too, is that, you know, a little bit of paranormal, a little bit of weird stuff, because, you know, there's so many <laughs> true websites out there. But I do a lot of stuff with scams, too. You know, I, I try to highlight that stuff there. In some cases, I've tried to help people out there um, because that is becoming a big problem there. You know, we talked right. about how pedophiles and rapists take away your they take away your your innocence, your soul murderers take away your life uh, scammers take away your dignity and your life savings you know do I think they're sure. as bad as the others are no but they they ruin lives too people do take their own lives because of that but I will still focus the savage watch will still mainly be focused on uh, 
cold cases and uh, trying to help the families and uh, families out. And, uh, you know, Dave, you do a great job with the podcast. Uh, you know, while we're on here, I tell I, sh- I want to tell people, please, if you're familiar with the station nightclub fire, please listen to that podcast. Excellent. Excellent podcast. Uh, you know, that's the case that, uh, you know, being going to college in Rhode Island, I was always, you know, after that happened, I was always paying attention to that. My brother, who's somebody that survived that fire. I know somebody else who knew people that died in that fire. But there's a lot of stuff that needs to be, you know, a lot of stuff people don't know about what don't happened know. there. And obviously the, the, the jobs that you do regarding the, these pedophiles and, you know, it's, it's tough stuff to listen to, but it's, it has to, be, <laughs> has to be told because they're out there. And parents and family members and friends need to know how these guys, and in some cases, women operate, or shall we just say monsters, because that's what the podcast is about, <laughs> how these monsters operate. But uh, Dave Thanks, will, be doing something, uh, yeah. will be doing something with a uh, case that I brought up to him, and uh, I think that uh, we're going to get some interesting answers. I think that you're right about that. The, the most gratifying thing is you never think you're going to solve anything, but the most gratifying thing is when people contact you and say either thanks or, hey, can you, because there's many cases as we know about and all the famous stuff, you know, that's out there. There's still so much, and I say this is my saying all the time, there's so much shit that doesn't have a Wikipedia page. It's stuff people don't know about, you know? Um, yeah. George Reardon, is the the worst child pornographer that anybody's ever seen. Um, nobody knows who he is. He's not on Wikipedia. There's no dateline. You know, nobody's talking about him. And that there's so much stuff just lost to history. You know. Yeah, I would love to see at least these people in the pictures. Uh, if they're if they're not alive, identified, so people can see that they were monsters, you know, that they took advantage of children, that they ruined children's innocence. Some of these, some of his victims, where his victims are now 60, 70, 80, well, I would say they're 80 years old there, but uh, that still impacts them. You could still get married, have kids, uh, live a life there, and it still eats away at you. It's Can still- I tell you the worst part? And we'll close on this. Much sure. like Chapman, I found um, with Reardon, a lot of his victims went on to uh, abuse other kids and ru- ruin their lives. So it just has a ripple effect, you know? So I'm sad. I talked sad. to one of Chapman's victims who he's a pedophile and he destroyed other kids' lives. And it's the, the pedophile butterfly effect. You know, Wayne Chapman destroyed them, George Reardon destroyed them, and they go on to destroy other people and just never ends you know so well, the, piece uh, the website yeah right, the right. Cycle. some people will never to some people it's just an attraction but to other people it's a it's a learned behavior it's an angry behavior those are the ones that you have to kind of try to prevent some people are just that can be prevented some people are just born that way those are the yes. those are the true the true monsters good place to end it the website's called savagewatch.com his name's terry sutton this i can't not recommend this website enough i probably look at it two or three times a week and this is nothing that i haven't said to terry when nobody's listening and we're just talking together so the guy really does a great service i appreciate you hanging out with me terry i really do brother when you're a stranger faces look ugly when you're alone women seem wicked when you're unwanted streets are uneven when you're down when you're strange 
voices come out of the rain when you're strange. No one remembers your name when you're strange. When you're strange. When you're strange. People are strange when you're a stranger. Faces get ugly when you're alone. Women seem wicked. When you're unwanted, streets are uneven when you're down. When you're strange, faces come out of the rain. When you're strange. When you're strange, when you're strange 